Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast in the spotlight brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. My name is Emily Schaefer, and I am one of the hosts of the show, and this is a science podcast where we chat with graduate students and early career researchers in the sciences about the very fascinating research that they do and why their work matters to the rest of us. This is now the second episode of season four of the podcast, which is absolutely wild to say. And this podcast will be coming up on its two-year anniversary this winter, and it's just grown so much over those two years, and it's in big thanks to listeners like you. If you happen to be new to the podcast, welcome. We have so many episodes in the first three seasons to listen to if this one happens to pique your interest, including ones that are related to the general type of science that we'll be talking about today. And in today's episode, we're going to be returning to a discipline that's near and dear to my heart, biomedical engineering. But while we've talked about it a lot in the podcast in other episodes, the topic more specifically within research that we're covering today is definitely new to all of us. And so it's coming at us from the worlds of engineering, biology, medicine, and regeneration. For this episode of In the Spotlight, I am so, so excited to have with me a fellow graduate student in biomedical engineering at Northwestern University, Rebecca Keat. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me today. Yay! Very excited that we got the chance to chat. And I am super excited to hear more about your work. But before we jump into that... Let's start with the the fun story, which is what in the world made you want to become a scientist? Yeah, so for me, I was born and raised in Chicago, and there is a museum called the Museum of Science and Industry. And in fifth grade, I was on a field trip, and they have a special exhibit called the U exhibit, which is all about medicine and physiology and how our bodies work. It's super cool. And in one part of this exhibit, they have a whole display on medical devices. And one of them was for balloon kyphoplasty, which is actually a device that lets surgeons inject a balloon full of cement into people's vertebrae in order to reposition their spine. And for my fifth grade self, I thought it was super cool that surgeons were actually using a balloon as a medical device. So that was my introduction to medical devices and sort of medical innovation. And I thought it was super interesting. Within medicine, there's obviously a lot of different types of ways that you can be involved in medicine. You could be a biologist, you could be a doctor, you could be a neuroscientist, you could be all sorts of things. So I guess what made you want to get into engineering specifically? For me, it was the ability to use creative problem solving skills and actually design different devices or come up with really interesting solutions to difficult questions that directly impact human health. And so speaking of interesting solutions to interesting questions, what sort of stuff have you been up to in grad school? Yeah, my research specifically is on the design of electronically active materials for regenerative engineering. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) 
let's start with regenerative engineering. I, I think we're all like a little bit familiar with what the term engineering is. And you did a great job of, of mentioning that before when you said coming up with solutions, you know, with, to these really technical problems. But when we say regenerative engineering, what does that mean? Regenerative engineering specifically just refers to any sort of solutions for our bodies to heal. So when we have a wound, for example, that's something we're all really familiar with. We typically put a Band-Aid on it. And so a Band-Aid is a really simple piece of technology that we don't necessarily think of as being a regenerative engineering solution, but it is because it's helping us heal. And that same concept of putting a Band-Aid on something, a wound or an injury, can apply to any different part of our body where we are trying to repair. So for example, a broken bone, maybe peripheral nerve injury, or a wound, like I previously said. These are all cases where we could benefit from a regenerative engineering solution. Is regenerative engineering more about repairing things that your body can't repair or repairing them differently or like speeding up the process of repair? Because our bodies can repair to some extent, right? So where does the regenerative engineering kind of fit into that? Yeah, I really love that question because it actually can apply to any of those. And classically in regenerative engineering, a lot of regenerative biologists always use like amphibian examples like newts or other animals that have the capacity to repair 100%. So with those animals, you know, you can cut off a limb and it'll just regrow and work the same as if it was there before. And obviously with humans, we don't have that capacity, but to an extent we do because you can get a cut in your skin and it will heal eventually, at least for the normal healthy person. But then you could also look at the case of diabetics. So when diabetics get a wound, it can't necessarily heal as easily as someone who doesn't have that particular disease. And then you could take it even a step further and say in a person who's not diabetic, if they get a really deep wound, it'll heal, but you'll have a scar and that's fibrotic tissue. And while that's fine for your daily life, you know, a scar doesn't necessarily impair your ability to live, but that scar is a, a sign of something that didn't heal properly. And that can happen again to any tissue system in your body. So regenerative engineering really encompasses all of that. And the answer to your question is anywhere there's a problem that affects our daily lives, regenerative engineering aims to help us heal so that we no longer have that problem. So I'm picturing like regrowing a limb or something crazy when you talk about those like animals that can regrow things right like something really wild I mean is that is that the end goal that you could potentially regrow anything I think it is I think it really is but restoring structure is one thing but then you also have to restore function you can maybe repair someone's limb. You can have skin and muscle and bone and nerve and all the important things. But if you can't get the limb to work in the same way, then it doesn't necessarily matter that it's there. So you also have to be mindful of this structure function relationship. That's a really good point. And that's something that 
I mean, as a fellow biomedical engineer, even though I'm not at all in regenerative engineering, the idea of like structure function relationships is something that comes up a lot in biology. So I imagine if you're trying to regrow a limb or an organ or even just like a piece of tissue or something like that, you have to like really understand the tissue super duper well, right? It really comes down to picking out what the most important components of that are. So going, staying with this limb example, what are the most important things that you need? Is it the fact that it has bones or is it the fact that it like functions and you have a hand that can grab onto things and what are the components that you need in order to accomplish that function? So there are so many different approaches to regenerative engineering because it's such a complex question and a complex problem that we're trying to try and solve. Yeah. And speaking of those different approaches, I noticed earlier when you were describing your area of research, you narrowed in on, I think you said conductive materials, electrically conductive materials. What are those materials and why are you using conductive materials? I said electronically active, which is super broad and doesn't necessarily give you a whole lot of information, but specifically what I'm using is a class of materials called conductive polymers, which are just electronically conductive materials. And the reason we use those is because one element of our bodies that's been really understudied up until recently is the role of electronic signals. And a lot of times when we think about electronics, we think about our cell phones and our computers and microchips and batteries. But really, it's a much broader category than that. A classic example is in neural tissue, where signals can be transmitted between cells and lead to some sort of tissue level response. In addition to neural tissue, those types of signals are important for multiple different tissue types in our bodies like skin. So when we get a wound, there's actually a signal that tells cells to migrate to the surface of that wound and initiate the repair processes. So in all sorts of tissue types, electronic signal is really important. I feel like a lot of people are used to thinking about like the brain as having electrical signals. What other types of tissue? So you mentioned brain, you mentioned skin. Is there anything else that would surprise us that there's like electrical signals going on in your body that you just have no idea that they're happening? Yeah, I think one of the most surprising is bone, actually. Bone is really sensitive to mechanical forces. And depending on the amount of load that your bones are used to experiencing if you necessarily are like an athlete your bones are typically experiencing a lot higher forces than if you are more sedentary and in response to those mechanical forces your bones are actually able to remodel but bone actually also is something called piezoelectric where it experiences a mechanical force and then outputs an electrical signal in response. And I think not many people are familiar with that phenomena. So just to summarize this, you're telling me that the bone is sensing 
the amount of mechanical force that it's experiencing when you do a task. And it's translating that from that mechanical signal to an electrical signal. So what in the world does it do with the electrical signal? Like, why is all of that important? So the electronic signal actually is really in the form, transmitted in the form of ions, specifically calcium is a big one in bone. And with those calcium signals that are occurring throughout the bone, they are delivered, they are sensed by different osteoblasts or osteoclasts, which are bone building and bone destroying cells, which can then remodel your bone in response to those original mechanical loads. So tying this back into regenerative engineering then, we know our tissue, like bone, have electrical signals. Why is that important to regenerative engineering? Why is that something we have to think about? It's important to think about electrical signals, especially in the context of regenerative engineering, because like I mentioned before with the limb example, we want to try and holistically repair something. We want to make sure that we are restoring all aspects of function that are important to a person's well-being. And not only that, but we want to try and find a route and make sure that the strategy that we're taking is going to give us success, right? It's not easy to just repair bone with high mechanical stress and the ability to withstand our daily lives. That's pretty, pretty high ask. So if we're only considering the tip of the iceberg, if we're only thinking about delivering chemicals that help the bone grow, or maybe putting an implant in to try and reinforce the damaged tissue, then we might not necessarily be repairing the bone to the best of our capabilities. So considering the role of the electronic signaling gives us another edge or another tool that we can use to really try and make sure that we are repairing the bone to the best of our scientific capabilities. Yeah, that segues really nicely into my follow-up question, which is, how does this all compare to the gold standard, which is just replacing a, a bone or a joint with some like really robust material? How, how does that work in terms of regenerating? And then how would, if you made it out of like a conductive material, how would that maybe help things? Yeah, the answer is the current gold standard works well enough to work. And that's why we do research is to try and make it better. But there's really a big bottleneck in taking things that we know work well in research and translating it to the clinic so that it can actually help patients. For conductive materials specifically, one of the really major drawbacks is actually just lack of FDA approval for any material that you need, for any material that you're implanting in a person. There's a suite of screening tests and validating of the material safety that needs to be done before it can be put in a person. So right now there 
are really not many materials that are conductive and are currently approved, which overall just makes the translation from bench top to bedside really difficult. And that's not even starting to think about what the cost of these products would be, because in order to recoup some of the money lost that's gone into research expenses, the price of their product would need to be really high. And with our current insurance system, there would need to be some sort of reimbursement. So it all gets very complicated in terms of translating new and innovative projects into patients. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought all of that up because as biomedical engineers, it's really important that we think about these sorts of things, right? That we're we're thinking critically about like the materials that we are choosing to use and like the expenses that this could potentially downstream cost on a person. So it I know it's a really delicate balance of like you need everything to be safe and the, you know, we have FDA approval for a reason. But we also don't want things to sit in this like forever stuck position and never get approved, right? So if you had to like change something or something's changed recently in the policy landscape about like approvals or whatnot, what would you like to see change about this entire process? So hopefully we can we can get more and new and exciting products to people. I think during COVID, there was a really good example of this where there was an urgent need for vaccines and the FDA found a way to create a path to vaccine manufacturing that didn't sacrifice any of the safety screening. And to me, that shows that there is potentially a better way that academia could work with the FDA to get new and innovative products out. But right now that path doesn't exist. I think the the COVID vaccine was just sort of a proof of concept that it's possible. I think part of the problem might be, you know, lack of resources on the side of the FDA. They put a lot of energy and effort in working with the companies who were trying to manufacture the COVID vaccines to make sure they were fully supported. So obviously they don't necessarily have the bandwidth to maintain that high speed for all the different materials and all the different devices that might be coming out of universities. But it would be interesting if there was a better line of communication or source of point of access between the FDA and the universities so that there could be more room for innovation in the healthcare market. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, everything in science is very collaborative and like direct communication is so important. So it it makes sense that the approval process and wherever the government gets involved, that we'd want that to be really communicative as well. Yeah, just to add on, another thing is most of academic money obviously comes from the government, like NIH for health-based research, as well as the NSF for more fundamental science research. And when they award those grants, there's not usually money or room in there for the commercialization of the technology that they paid for. They always want to know how is this applicable to the public, but then they never give the labs any resources to actually make it applicable to the public. So a lot of times professors are hesitant to try and translate their product because they really just don't have the resources and the type of outputs that 
these funding agencies want to see are things like papers, not necessarily this is my startup company, but you need to have a startup company if you want to make this lucrative so that I can actually reach patients. Yeah, that's a super good point. I'm glad you brought that up as well. So it sounds like there's a lot of room for potential in the way that we do our approval and like testing processes. Is there anything recent that's come up that makes you excited about this commercialization process and how it could change? One thing I did see that is not necessarily directly related to regenerative engineering, but is related to healthcare in general is the Right to Try Act, which is a very cool policy that allows patients to try new drugs that are not necessarily fully approved by the FDA, but are undergoing clinical testing. So before that, different pharmaceuticals had to be fully approved, but now if patients are terminally ill and are looking for some sort of exploratory treatment, they are actually able to have access to that. Whereas before, it's really tricky for companies because clinical trials are so expensive. They don't want to necessarily include certain populations, but with the Right to Try Act, patients that wouldn't necessarily be able to access a drug now have the ability to try. So that's all drug related. What would that look like if we did it with materials? I definitely think there's some room for translation and applicability for materials. So with the Right to Try Act, you still have to demonstrate that it's safe before other people can come and try it. And I think with materials, it would be great if there was a feasible pathway to demonstrate safety, and then you can potentially start incorporating it into different devices that could be tried. Right now, the path to get a new material approved is very expensive and very difficult for anyone to accomplish. So if there was some sort of program that allowed them to be tested at some sort of basic level or tried for people who might have limited options otherwise, I think that would be a really great stepping stone towards making the process easier. Very cool. And so you've brought up a lot of great examples about how your body has electrical tissue and how this could be really important for regenerative engineering. If you had to design something like your dream product to solve the most fascinating problem that you could think of in regenerative engineering, what would you create? I am super interested personally in a disease called osteoarthritis or just arthritis which affects our joints. And the reason I'm so interested in it is because it affects a very high population of people, especially in the United States. And a lot of those people are elderly. And the only solution currently is for them to undergo total joint replacement, which is super painful, super expensive and also requires general anesthesia, which once you get above a certain age actually becomes very dangerous. So people live in this debilitating pain because this disease limits their mobility. And then the only option that they have is to try and risk their life and undergo this really painful recovery. But the joint itself is really difficult to regenerate because like I said earlier, you have to think about the structure function relationship. 
And because it includes multiple different types of tissue, it's really difficult to restore the structure and then usually the tissue doesn't function that well. So I personally would love to design some sort of injectable that we could just administer to the joint of pain or the disease joint that maybe stops tissue degradation when patients are in the early stage of the disease or restores the structure to a degree that allows function to be recovered or limits the patient's pain. Very cool. Hopefully we'll see that on the horizon soon, right? I would love that. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay. Well, one final important question. If everybody listening to this episode were to remember just one thing out of all the stuff that you've been talking about today, what do you want to spotlight? The coolest thing really about the work that I do is the role of electronics. And I think in general, they're super underrated in terms of human health. So I just would like people to take away that our cells and our body are super advanced and they accomplish a lot of really cool things. And electronics all play a role in that. And I think that's a really interesting learning that not many people necessarily have. Yeah, that's a great thing for us to keep in mind, especially if you are tuning in again to the podcast. We always love to talk about life sciences related research. There's so much going on in the worlds of medicine and biology. And so that'll be something cool for us to keep in mind into the future. Well, I have certainly learned a lot of new things in this conversation, and I'm guessing anybody listening has been really intrigued as well. So if somebody really wanted to learn more or contact you, is there a way that they could do that? Yeah, so Twitter definitely works. My handle is Rebecca underscore Kate, K-E-A-T-E. But also feel free to reach out via LinkedIn and shoot me a message. That works as well. Awesome. Thank you again so much for coming on the podcast, Rebecca. Your research is super cool. And I hope that everyone listening felt the same way and was super jazzed up by it, just like I was. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Emily. It was so much fun. To everybody that was listening to this episode, I want to remind all of you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. All of those things go a really long way in helping us share the podcast with as many people as possible, and it just means so much to all of us that help put on the podcast behind the scenes. If you want to connect with the podcast on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at SpotlightThePod. And as a reminder, this podcast was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. And you can learn more about SPOT at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or also on Twitter, at SPOTForceNU. And finally, one big shout out to all of the members of the podcast team at SPOT that are helping me put this podcast together. This episode would not be possible without all of them, especially my co-host, Nicholas Scretton Alvarado and Colleen O'Brien. We'll see you back for another episode here soon. 